Grand Canyons. Big things have small beginnings. Peter O'Toole, S.D.E. Lawrence in Lawrence of Arabia. There was a wedding in the small village of Cana. Jesus, his disciples, and his mother, Mary, were all there as invited guests. During the festivities, the host ran out of wine. Mary went to Jesus and told him, they're out of wine. Knowing what she wanted him to do, he told her, I love you, Mom, but that's not our problem. It's too early for me to do what you want me to do. But she didn't respond. She just told the servers, do whatever he tells you to do. From John 2, 1 through 5. Flying used to seem fun. Sometimes it still is. A few years ago, when flying to the Hawaiian island of Kauai, our friends surprised us with upgrading our four-hour flight to first class. We sat in our living room recliner seats and watched the other pitiful passengers, that normally would be us, pass to the cramped quarters of steerage class, a.k.a. coach, as we were offered champagne at 8 in the morning. I went for the made-to-order crab omelet instead. I never wanted that flight to end. Not so today. Today was an ever-so-run-of-the-mill flight from Kansas City, Missouri to the City of Angels. KCI, the so-called International Airport of Kansas City, is one of the worst-designed airports in America, in my opinion. I'm flying to LAX, and if you've been there, well, enough said. If there were a direct flight to the nether region of the underworld of Greek mythology, Hades himself would be your pilot, and the flight would connect you through LAX. I fly a lot. And I have a plan to be without a middle seat neighbor. Normally, my plan works. I choose a second row of seats from the back because the back row doesn't recline. And I hope that no one wants to sit by me. Today, my routine was sound. The middle-aged couple who eyed the seats next to me were deciding where to sit between my row and the row in front of me when I let out a fake coughing fit that sounded real. Today, it didn't help, though. The dreaded question came, Are these seats taken? No, <laughs> I said in the last desperate attempt to keep my bubble intact. They are available. I know I should have rubbed my eyes more to look more sick. It's from my cramped window seat that I write this chapter. It's not the worst flight I've ever been on. The guy in front is squirmy. He keeps smashing my laptop screen when he moves kind of semi-violently. The lady behind me has a baby in another row, and I miss the reason why, but the drama's been poignant. She's also airsick. I hope it's not something more serious because it sounds really bad and I'm not actually sick. I was just faking. The people next to me have consumed four beers, which for some reason they haven't been charged for, but they're pretty nice. The woman in the middle seat isn't crowding my space, which is rare and nice for a change. She's from Tennessee. Turns out she's headed back to New Zealand with her new husband from his native country. Yes, she married a Kiwi. And I'm cramped into the 17-inch space between the middle seat and the window. In case you aren't familiar with the flight path from Kansas City to Los Angeles, and if you're fortunate, you aren't, there's not a lot to see. Flat farmland in the middle of winter with melted snow is pretty much all you see. At least I thought so. Somehow, something outside the window caught my eye. Something that I knew must have existed, but I guess I never really thought about it before. Peering out of the window next to me, I am seeing the most amazing sight. Somewhere over the middle of nowhere, something amazing is actually there. The distinct beginning of the Grand Canyon. A small start. It's obvious that the Grand Canyon starts somewhere, but I don't really know where. I've been to the Grand Canyon a few times, and I've studied satellite photos of it. I'm a nerd that way. But I never really thought about where it starts. And you can't see all of the Grand Canyon from one place. It's too grand. 
a mile deep in some spots and a mile wide in others, it's an amazing sight to behold the awesome power of water and the creativity of a God who made this third planet from the sun. But I've never really heard someone mention the small beginnings of that massive gorge. Now, there's a name for the place where the Grand Canyon starts. It's called Lee's Ferry. In 1857, John D. Lee retreated there to escape justice for his part in the Mountains Meadows Massacre that murdered 120 people in Mormon religious fervor. In this spot where Glen Canyon ends and the Grand Canyon begins, for just a few hundred yards, the Colorado River has shore on both sides. It's the only such place for hundreds of miles in either direction. Usually there's cliffs. Lee established a ferry there and was later arrested and executed. You didn't know where the Grand Canyon begins? Well, now you do. It's easy to forget that Jesus wasn't born the famous history-splitting miracle worker either. Sure, he was God, but no one knew it. Even his parents had mixed feelings. When Jesus disappeared and was found in the temple teaching the rabbis a thing or two, his parents responded like any other parents would. They were worried and confused. Not about the all-powerful creator of the universe, but about their boy. When Jesus reminded them of who he was, they were speechless. The angels that appeared at the birth of their son was a distant memory more than a decade removed. Mary did something that mothers do. She tucked it away in her heart, is what the Bible says. Unable to wrap her brain fully around how different this maternal experience was going to be from her sisters and cousins, she decided to think about it. Those thoughts went into the emotional vault that all moms seemed to have locked away somewhere waiting for further action at a later time. It would be years before we see her considering the ramifications of being the mom of the Messiah again. At a wedding for an unnamed couple in Cana, a small village near Nazareth, a crisis arose. And that crisis had her finally testing the idea that her son, long understood to be different by now, was really more than just different. An ordinary wedding requires the supernatural. Jesus and his disciples were invited guests to a wedding, and Jesus' mother was there too. We don't know who's getting married, but it must have been a big deal. Of course, weddings usually are. Weddings might be the most momentous of all human rituals. Two people decide to become each other's lifelong sexual partners, romantic interests, family co-creators, financial partners, travel buddies, social collaborators, friends, emergency managers, career coaches, healthcare advocates, roommates, and more. It is really something that people make that kind of decision so young and that so many marriages last a lifetime. If you studied the Bible much, then you already know that weddings were longer than they are these days, maybe even lasting a couple of days. At some point, for some reason, the host of the wedding at Cana ran out of wine. That might be a big deal in our time, but in Jesus' culture, hospitality was a huge part of one's social standing. Lots of cultures are still like that now. I've sat in a mud and manure hut with a teenage Maasai boy in Kenya who beamed with pride over serving me the world's hottest tea. I've had the most incredible food served by Oaxacan people who live in pallet and plastic shacks. Having and serving guests is at the heart of many cultures, and it was clearly crucial to the social capital of Jesus' time. But in Jesus' time, there was something else. Water usually made you sick. Wine throughout history has been an important source of liquid nourishment because it's sterile. As the sugar in grape juice is eaten by yeast, the byproduct is alcohol. And while alcohol is mostly valued now for its mood-altering capabilities, it has been valued throughout history for its antiseptic abilities. 
In Jesus' time, wine would even be mixed with water to kill the bacteria that thrives in still water. Of course, people didn't know about yeast and bacteria and alcohol. They just knew that water could make you sick and that wine didn't, unless you drank too much of it, of course. Consequently, wine, even the low-quality stuff, was essential to somebody's diet in Jesus' day. Running out of wine was more than uncool. It was endangering people's health. You can't invite people to your wedding and then have them worried about getting diarrhea. It's just not cool. Energy's mom. Like so many awesome moms, she is a problem solver. No one knows what to do, but then it hits her. Her son has divine power. The Bible tells us the story. Mary went to Jesus and told him, they're out of wine. Knowing what she wanted him to do, he told her, I love you, mom, but that's not our problem. It's too early for me to do what you want me to do. But she didn't respond. She just told the servers, do whatever he tells you to do. There were six large ritual cleansing jars made of stone that were there for ceremonial washing. Each one could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servers to fill them with water, and they did. He told them, take some out and bring it to the master's ceremonies. And they did. When the MC tasted the water that had been transformed into wine, he wondered where it came from. The servers knew what happened, but they didn't say. He called the groom over to compliment him, a bit puzzled. A host always serves the best wine first when people are still completely sober, and then after they've been drinking a while, he brings out the cheap stuff when no one cares. But you've saved the best for last. This was the first time Jesus revealed what he could really do, and his disciples believed in him. You have to appreciate Jesus' interaction with his mother. She doesn't ask him to help. She just tells him, they're out of wine. And then she probably gave him that mom look. When Jesus told her he shouldn't do what she was asking him to do, Mary didn't argue. She'd already made it clear what she expected him to do. He had made his plea, and it had fallen on deaf ears. She simply looked at the servers and told him, do whatever he tells you. I like to imagine her giving them that this might get weird, but do it anyway look. Jesus, the Savior of humanity, the second member of the triune Godhead, had lost an argument with his mother. He's 30 years old. He already has 12 men that have left everything to follow him and will someday have over 2 billion followers. He told his mother he does not want to make miraculous wine. She does not listen. He makes miraculous wine. But then and there, something began. Jesus would do around 40 miracles that are recorded and presumably many, many more that aren't recorded. He would feed tens of thousands of people from a couple of sack lunches. He would heal terminal diseases, correct lifelong disabilities, and bring back people from the dead. He would himself come back to life after three days in the grave to save all of humanity. But it all started here with this small display of what he was capable of. There were so many reasons not to do this miracle. First of all, Jesus was not a winemaker. The timing was all wrong. The people had already had a lot to drink. There's only one reason to do the miracle. His mom asked him to. But from there, a spark of faith ignites a small fire. John, who tells us the story, throws in this little statement that you might have missed before. And his disciples believed in him. This matters, particularly because of what comes next. The next thing Jesus did was crazy. He went to the temple in Jerusalem. He made his own whip from rope. 
He acted like a madman and drove out the sheep and cattle from the temple court. He threw the money from the currency exchange merchants all over the floor and then flipped their tables over. It's hard to say if the disciples would have stuck with him to see the incredible things that they would see if they hadn't first seen the miracle at Cana. They might have just said, okay, this guy's a pretty good teacher, but he is nuts. You couldn't blame them. He goes on to tell Nicodemus that he must somehow be birthed a second time. He usurps John the Baptist's ministry. He meets alone with a Samaritan woman with lax sexual morals. All of this happens over a period of at least months before he performs his next miracle. Had he not lost an argument with his mother, Jesus' disciples may have fled. I mean, who could blame them? But something had started. It had been small, but it had begun. Like the Grand Canyon, it had started slight. It was just a little flat spot on the river, but a great chasm was forming. Incomparable significance. What Jesus did, the significance of what he did, cannot adequately be put into words, although many have tried. Napoleon, the conquering emperor of France, said this, And no man, and I can tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force? Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Albert Einstein said, As a child, I received instruction in both the Bible and the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled with the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. H.G. Wells, the author, said, I'm an historian. And I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Kenneth Latourette, former president of the American Historic Society, said, As the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by its effect on history, the life of Jesus is the most influential ever lived on this planet. The influence appears to be mounting. No other life lived on this planet has so widely and deeply affected mankind. Daniel Webster, the politician, said, All that is best in the civilization of today is the fruit of Christ's appearance among men. C.S. Lewis, the author, said, You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Ernest Renan, historian, religious scholar, and linguist, said, All history is incomprehensible without Christ. Although there are some early writings of historical value, the narrative of history begins about 2000 B.C. That is, people began to purposely record what was happening for future generations about 4,000 years ago. History is, in a quite literal sense, split down the middle with Jesus as the great divide. The divine irony is that his birth, life, death, and resurrection don't split the time before him and after him. He joins the BC and the AD. What's more, he bridged the chasm between God and humans that our humanness had created. Big things start small. The same Jesus that turned water into wine, turned death into life. 
and fear into hope and turn the poor into the blessed and turn Friday's grief into Sunday's elation. And it all started at a wedding in a little village called Cana because Jesus reluctantly listened to his mom. Everything you know about Jesus is wrong. Jesus was not always the world-famous history-changing savior of the world. Of course, he was always those things, but no one really knew. He was instead known as a son, brother, friend, construction worker, and other mundane, ordinary roles in a family and community. He was faithful in those roles and even decided that his mother's request superseded his own timing. The creator of the universe wasn't always in charge. He proved that there were no small roles, only small people who didn't think big enough. Change how you think about Jesus. Jesus, the most important person in history, honored his mother when there were good reasons to deny her request. What example is that set for you about submitting to those who are honored in your life? Challenge your assumptions. God says in Zechariah 4.10, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. What things have you regarded as small when they could be the start of something significant? Choose to live differently. Jesus calls us to be faithful in the little things before we will be trusted with big things. What so-called little things do you need to treat with excellence so that God can trust you with more?